Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Brian Sack from the University of Michigan talking about undescended testicle. Uh, my name is Yi. I'm one of the fifth-year residents at UCSF. I'll be moderating this talk. Um, welcome to the lecture. Uh, one housekeeping issue for the second lecture today and moving forward, we're going to change the time to start at 10.10 uh, uh, Pacific time, and those will go for a full hour till 11.10. And that's to allow time to transition over since everyone will need to log out and then log back in through the website for the second lecture. And I'll repeat that again at the end of the talk. And then again, please fill out the evaluation at the end of all the talks to help us keep improving. Um, and without further ado, Dr. Brian Sack is going to talk to us from the University of Michigan about the undescended testicle. Thanks, E. And thanks to everybody at UCSF and Lindsay and Michelle for helping put all this together. Um, it's kind of fun when I first signed up for this, I thought it was gonna be like 30 or 40 residents I'm talking to, and now I'm talking to a blank computer screen of hundreds of residents and staff alike. So I hope you enjoy the talk. A lot of you are probably wondering how I'm going to fit 45 minutes to talk about undescended testicle, but don't you worry, I will fill that time just fine. <clears throat> so I got no disclosures. I am going to be using Slido during the talk. I'm going to ask three different questions throughout this, the talk. If you want to go ahead and use your camera or your phone to pull up the QR code now, that'll be nice to start the polls later on. Um, I'll intermittently pull it up. I'll give you a second to do that. So when I was uh, asked to do this, um, one of the recommendations was to use the core curriculum or the guidelines. I don't know how much of the guidelines you guys have utilized thus far in your training as a resource for education, but having just taken the oral boards, it's an incredible resource. AOA puts lots of money and lots of effort into these um, guidelines and statements and the discussions that go along with each statement. They're all very worded very, very carefully. So you'll see as we go through the 16 guideline statements for unassigned testicle that um, the wording is, uh, is appropriate and um, helps kind of cover all our bases with regards to undescended testicle. Start off with some de definitions um, to help understand the rest of the talk. We'll talk about diagnoses guidelines. We'll talk about um, etiology, epidemiology, physical exam. I'm just checking the chat to make sure you guys are all good to go. Looks like you guys are good. Okay. Uh, physical exam, unique workup, some pathological changes, seeing the undescended testicle, then going in guidelines, use of hormonal supplementations, reason for intervention, timing for intervention, and then method of intervention, and then at, at the end, some quick questions and answer. I'm not going to go through much technical details about doing orchidopexies. You can utilize some surgical atlases that are out there. But I'm happy to answer any questions regarding that if you're interested. Okay, so definition. Um, normal scrotal position. I'm just going to run through these real quick just so we're all on the same page going forward. Normal scrotal position. So midpoint of the testis at or below the midscrotum. Undescended testis, crypt orchidism, maldescended testis. They all mean the same thing. Absence of one or both testis in the normal scrotal position. This may be palpable or non-palpable. Agenesis. So this is a little bit different than the nubbin or remnant, but this is the in the testicle was never present. And therefore it's often associated with ipsilateral mullerian duct persistence. Um, that's just because of the absence of the local paracrine effect of the mullerian inhibiting substance that um, prevents the mullerian development. So you may have a uterus, vagina, fallopian tube on that side um, if you were to get a pelvic ultrasound. Congenital unascended testicles is a testis that are extrascrotal at birth acquired or ascending unascended testicle. This is a testis that was documented as, as scrotal at a previous exam without intervening inguinal surgery and it subsequently at a follow-up exam was found to be undescended. Secondary UDT, this is often after hernia repairs in young children. So they get hernia repair, the, the cord is dissected away at the time of closing off the processus vaginalis and then the testis, the testis heals in a higher position as it scars in place, um, resulting in a secondary undescended testicle. There's retractile testes. This has adequate length to be brought down into the scrotum, but um, retract back into the upper scrotum or even into the inguinal canal. So it's not necessarily a length issue. It's more of a um, retraction from a tight cremasteric uh, muscle uh, contraction. 
And lastly, vanishing testes. So this was a testis that was there at one time, and then it kind of went away. And this is often secondary to a vascular accident or torsion. Um, oftentimes it happens fetally, and we never document the torsion itself. Sometimes it happens postnatally, um, and it kind of was missed, and then it presents as a uh, non-palpable testicle many years later. Okay, diagnosis guidelines. I'm going to read through each of these, um, but there is a nice figure that the AOA put together that kind of goes through like an algorithm of working through uh, diagnosis and treatment for these children. Um, it's a nice reference to use, um, but it doesn't uh, go into all of the details. And that's what I'm going to do for you guys today. So statement one, providers should obtain gestational history at initial evaluation of boys with suspected crypt orchidism. So the exact cause of cryptorganism is relatively unknown. Uh, it's likely resulted from multiple genetic and environmental risk factors. Um, multiple basic science researchers have been trying to understand, but it seems like it's a multiple gene, multiple environmental risk factors, and also some independent things from that as well. Um, some perinatal associated factors include prematurity, low birth weight, small size, breech presentation, maternal diabetes. And then there's some conflicting evidence in the literature whether or not different maternal exposures result in increased incidence of unascended testicle. It's still always worthwhile asking a mom at the time of um, infant exam about exposures, not just for unascended testicle, but for other syndromes as well, including alcohol consumption or binge drinking, smoking, and then one interesting one with acetaminophen and other or more than one analgesic use during the earlier and midterm pregnancy and whether or not that could have also caused an ascended testicle. Again, conflicting uh, results out there on that one. Um, so about one to 4% of all boys um, have an unascended testicle, a full-term boys, about one to 45%, again, incredible range, depending on um, who's doing the exam, um, how they're kind of documenting whether or not the presence of the testicle is there, but increase in preterm boys, and then a significant familial recurrence risk ratio in twins, brothers, and offspring. So we're gonna go ahead and ask our first question. Um, so the first question is, how much more likely is a syndromic child to have an unascended testis um, uh, than a non-syndromic child? I'll give you guys a couple seconds. Um, so yeah, pretty much you can tell that it's, it, it is more. Um, and how much more is really the interesting point. It looks like we've settled out about four to one. Um, so the, the answer is to one, four to one, so not any difference with this here, and I want to kind of ingrain this is, is when you look at all the different syndromes that I have listed here, some associated with urologic issues, they got Klinefelter syndrome, they've got a karyotype issue, they have testicle, undescended testicles, um, fertility issues, you've got prune bellies, you've got reflux, undescended testicles, abnormal abdominal wall, you've got posterior through valves, hypospadias, so all things that maybe we're going to be consulted for, patients that we're going to see in the clinic all the time. But there's also a number of other listed um, abnormalities here as well. Like I already mentioned, prune belly abdominal wall problems, Megalian hernia abdominal wall problem, um, phalliceal abdominal wall problem, gastroschisis abdominal wall problem. So there's a, there's a thought or theory that there needs to be kind of abdominal wall, uh, it needs to be intact to allow for kind of descent of the testicles, whether or not it's a pressure thing, I don't really know. I don't think anybody knows, but that's one of the theories. But either way, the point here is, is you're going to get a lot of consults on infants and young children in the ICU with syndromes, right? And sometimes they're going to have contractures, and doing a genital exam is going to be somewhat difficult, and maybe they haven't gotten one since they've been admitted. Maybe they haven't gotten a good one in quite some time. So when you get consulted for a, uh, a different urologic issue in a syndromic child, please do a scrotal exam. You'll be surprised at how many uh, undescended testicles you may doc document. Maybe we'll intervene on them now, maybe we'll intervene on them in the future, but it's good to have it documented and counsel the family appropriately. Guideline statement two, primary care providers should palpate testes for quality and position at each recommended well-child visit. Again, these statements are worded um, very nicely and pointedly, so I highlighted the at each one here, and that's kind of purposeful to ensure that if it does ascend, um, it is documented early on and not as they enter into puberty. This is probably my least favorite slide, and for a lot of us, embryology is not one of our favorite things to talk about. Um, I had difficulty finding a good picture that would allow me to kind of describe things in less than 20 minutes about the descent of the testicle. 
I'm just going to read through this quickly, um, but it's pretty much broken down into five different phases. I'm sorry, the last row of numeral is marked as a four, but five different phases, starting at five weeks of gestation and all the way about to 28 weeks of gestation when the testicle is nearly into the scrotum. And the time between the first phase and the fifth phase is pretty much the growth of the gubernaculum, which is the structure that kind of anchors the testicle into the scrotum. And a lot of people believe that that's kind of what guides the testicle down into the scrotum. So the gubernaculum passes through the process of vaginalis. It kind of, the cremester muscles kind of pull down around the testicle and around the cord. The testis grows. Um, the gubernaculum continues to descend. Um, the, the, the gubernaculum is thought to swell as it's within the process of vaginalis, and that swelling is then allowed to, uh, is thought to allow for the larger testicle to pass behind it. And then you have kind of release of some of the, the subcutaneous attachments of the gubernaculum as it passes down into the scrotum and the testis follows. Um, it does continue to descend after birth. Um, um, some people say like, well, how long should it descend? Can we come back later? Can I see you in a year? Is it gonna continue to descend? A pretty good retrospective study by Wenzel back in 2004 pretty much said that after six months of age, it's not gonna descend any further. So, Earlier on, if it's still in the you know high scrotum or inguinal canal, and patients want to wait till six months repeat exam, that's reasonable. But more importantly, it's kind of when they should get referred to the urologist is after six months of age. So, how to do a physical exam? So, this is probably one of the more difficult aspects of the physical exam um, uh, that we do in urology um, is the palpation of a uh, undescended testicle. So uh, I'm going to give you my experience, what I prefer to do. You're going to hear different things from different staff, and I'll give you my, my approach. So I thought the patient in supine position um, or even a frogling can help, help kind of expose the scrotum. I tend to stand on the contralateral side, allows me to kind of pull down the inguinal canal towards myself. You know, the inguinal canal is kind of directed kind of from lateral to medial. Caudally, I take my top hand, I kind of press down along the, the inguinal canal. If you don't know where the inguinal canal is, you're not really familiar, just go as far as the ASIS, put your hand on the hip, and then work your way towards the scrotum, kind of almost like in a hockey stick pattern. You're coming along the inguinal canal and then kind of bringing it down towards the scrotum. And then your bottom hand can either milk down with the other hand or can help identify and hold on to the testicle. Now, when you're doing the exam, some testicles are gonna be like this one on the right, and it's going to be high inguinal, or maybe it's even peeping, and it's intra-abdominal. So as you kind of pull down, maybe you can pull it within the inguinal canal, and you can kind of get a good hold of it, and then you can actually palpate it. Um, that will kind of make a difference on how what the intervention and the approach will be later on. Um, that's all you may be able to get is an inguinal canal. You may see it pop just underneath your fingers, so you may not be able to actually hold onto it per se, but just having that pop as it moves away from your fingers will help counsel the family and help direct your next steps. But a lot of times these are retractile testicles or maybe they're not even retractile and they're truly descended. So when you're moving that hand down across, you may be able to grab with your other hand and hold onto the testicle after you brought it into the scrotum. And that kind of brings me to the next point is once you get the testicle, if you can't get it all the way down into the scrotum, you've got to kind of try to differentiate, is this a retractile testicle or does this snap back? And is this an undescended testicle? A lot of children in your office, when you're trying to do a scrotal exam, they're going to be cold, nervous, afraid, all things that are going to cause the testicle to retract and cause the cremasteric muscle to kind of contract up. So by holding onto the testicle in the scrotum, hold it there 15, 20, 30 seconds, you're kind of fatiguing the cremasters and hopefully the child is also more relaxed and comfortable as you're not kind of pulling on his groin anymore. And then when you release the testicle, where does it go? stays in the scrotum is probably retractile, probably can follow up in a year with a year with another exam. If it snaps back, then you've got to start thinking about intervening for the undescended testicle. Another thing to take a look at is what does the scrotum look like? Sometimes in a truly undescended or even absent testicle or vanishing testis, you may have a hypoplastic hemiscrotum. So you may see a discordance between the right and left sides of the scrotum, and you may give you more of an idea. If you've got a perfectly developed scrotum and the you may already, before you even touch the patient, realize that this testicle is probably going to come down into the scrotum. And then lastly, compensatory contralateral hypertrophy. So if the vanishing testis phenomena is that happens fetally in these patients, then it's thought that the, the contralateral testis kind of appreciates the absence of the other side, and then this testicle becomes 
compensatorily hypertrophied. Um, so the, the measurements somewhere between 1.8 and 2 centimeters or greater than that, if that's the size of the testicle, the contralateral testicle, it is the increased association of vanishing testis on the affected side. Something to keep in, um, something to think about. It's not something you have to live by. So if it's greater than two centimeters, that means you don't have to go exploring for the other testicle. Um, but it's something to just at least counsel the patients on. And it may change your approach a little bit. And I'll talk about that uh, later. So where is the undescended testicle? About 70% of them are palpable um, within the inguinal canal, in, in the superficial inguinal pouch, in the upper scrotum, or even ectopic in location. And I'll show a picture about that in a second. Then there's non-palpable, so 30% of the 100%. And with those 30%, 30% of them are still inguinal scrotal. So this is just because maybe you just couldn't get a good exam. And you always have to remember that, that you've got to do a good exam under anesthesia before you do the diagnostic laparoscopy, because many a time you'll identify the testicle on exam and then avoid having to go intraperitoneally. 55% uh, of them, about half of them are intra-abdominal, another 15% are vanished. So here's an interesting picture I've got out of Campbell's of the testis locations for ectopia. So how do I interpret this? Well, I think of it as if you assume the testicle has reasonable length as it exits out of the external ring, which the external ring is going to kind of be sitting like right where my pointer is here. And if you think of it as kind of like on a cord, if you were to bring that testicle anywhere in location out of that external ring, you pretty much could point it to any of these locations. This perirenal one, I'm pretty certain it's meaning for this side, it just they couldn't put another marker on the picture, but you pretty much can get any location in here. So just be cautious whenever you're doing orchidopexy or when you're, more importantly, when you're doing your initial exam, maybe you don't feel anything here. You know, it is worthwhile feeling out femorally or perineally. Um, and then when you're doing your um, exposure, always be, be weary to remember that the testicle could be up over your external oblique um, fascia or over your inguinal canal uh, and you don't want to kind of barge through it um, um, inadvertently injuring the testicle or the cord structures. Guideline statement three, providers should refer infants with a history of crypt orchidism detected at birth who did not have spontaneous testicular descent by six months, corrected for gestational age, to an appropriate surgical specialist for timely evaluation. So timely evaluation, I highlight it there. We kind of have this tight window of perfection to intervene on these child's children. So I'll talk about the timing a little bit more in a second, but six months to 18 months is kind of that sweet spot. Guideline statement four kind of falls in nicely with statement three, and this one is for those that have acquired cryptorchidism, that providers should refer, the, refer boys with the possibility of newly diagnosed Required cryptorchidism for six months to an appropriate surgical specialist. Again, a highlight possibility here because a lot of times what happens is PCPs like a little uncertain with their exam. They say, oh, we'll see you in a year. The next well child visit, we'll evaluate it again. Honestly, we'd rather you just send them to the pediatric urologist. Let us kind of make that decision. Oftentimes, it releases a lot of parental anxiety anyways. So now kind of embarking on some early pathological changes and why we kind of um, um, intervene relatively early. So um, if you remember the life of a, of a, of a gonocyte into spermatogonia and spermatogonia into spermatocyte, um, it's been shown that in the unascended testicle that the number of overall spermatogonia per tubule is reduced after infancy and fails to increase normally with, with age in an undescended testicle. They did look at children in about one and a half months old uh, through biopsy um, and noticed that they themselves actually had the same number of spermatogonia as a normal descended testicle. So it's a kind of a progressive problem um, and it's been found to be even more severe in patients with myelomeningocele, posterior valves, and prune belly syndrome. So what happens is the delay in the disappearance of the gonocytes. So the gonocytes kind of transition into AD spermatogonia and this transition to AD spermatogonia kind of allows for this kind of stem cell per se within the scrotum or for spermatogonia and for spermatocytes, the, the cells that continually turn over and re reproduce themselves to allow for future spermatocytes and um, future, mature, future mature sperm. So the absence or the decreased number of these AD spermatogonium is thought to go hand in hand with the decreased uh, fertility. Okay, next question. Okay, so 
the fertility rate, not infertility, the fertility rate of a unilateral UDT is, Ninety percent, eighty-three percent, seventy-four percent, sixty-two percent, forty percent. So, if you think about normal fertility in the normal population, sitting somewhere between um, ninety and ninety-four percent, um, where do you think somebody who has a unilateral unascended testicle sits? Obviously, for bilateral unascended testicles, it's going to be a little bit different. Um, a little worse, I should say. I'll just give you another second. But um, this is one of the main topics that comes in, up in discussion in the clinical visits when you see these patients. And part of that reason is just because, which is a little weird actually, just because you're talking with like an infant six month old, now you're talking about fertility and um, things like that, which maybe not something the parents had kind of quite expected, but it is the main discussion point during the, talk, during the, the, the counseling session. Oh, okay, great. Well, you guys did better than I expected there. So the short answer is, um, it, I'll show it in a second, but it is about equal to the normal population. Um, so the, the point that I was making before is that this is considered a progressive disease and it's not static. So the longer it stays undescended, the longer the likelihood that that testicle will, uh, will lose its function. And that's thought to relate to overall germ cell depletion, the absence of these 80s spermatogonia that I just talked about. Um, loss of latex cells and or an increase in testicular fibrosis, which is also seen in the long-term undescended cryptorchid testes. So the paternity rate or fertility rate is around 90%, which is relatively similar to the fertility found in other studies of general population when, um, when this was evaluated. But looking at bilateral, the paternity rate kind of shifts down to around 62%. Um, compared with a match group control of 94%. So there's about a six-fold increase in risk. So I kind of think of this kind of similarly to a testis tumor that we remove or do orchiectomy for some other reason um, that fortunately the contralateral testicle, if healthy, should allow for um, a, a reasonable fertility close to that of the general population with two descended testicles. Whereas those with bilateral undescended testicles, um, you do have to counsel the parents more appropriately and, and instruct them that when the child becomes an adolescent or an adult, that of having difficulty conceiving naturally, that they should entertain seeing a fertility specialist a little bit earlier than they than was typically recommended. Okay, guideline statement number five. Providers must immediately consult an appropriate specialist for all phenotypic male newborns with bilateral non-palpable testes for evaluation of a possible disorder of sexual death sex development or DSD. So this is the first part of the algorithm that they include. I think that's because of the importance there. I think that when you have bilateral non-palpable, you have to immediately about um, a threatening condition also known as congenital adrenal hyperplasia or 46XXCAH. So a genotypic female with masculinized phenotype um, secondary to um, CAH. Um, so when this guideline was initially written in 2014, uh, there was not as uh, the volume of maternal screening or prenatal maternal serum screening for karyotypes was not as high. So I think that's one of the first questions that you should ask. Did you have maternal serum screening? And if they had 46XY on the screening, um, you can be a little bit more comforted. You should still go down the workup. It's probably worthwhile as, in, you know, I'm not exactly sure what the, um, Specificity, specificity and sensitivity of the maternal screen, screening is, but it's, um, it's worth questioning at this point because it can kind of um, change the degree of urgency. Um, but with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is a talk in and of itself, you're pretty much an inability to control your electrolytes, hyponatremic, hyperkalemic, um, and at that time it's recommended you get a karyotype, which takes a few days, so getting the electrolytes and hormonal profiling will help give you an understanding on the child's ability to control their electrolytes and also understand kind of their hormonal milieu to help diagnose CH and help direct whether or not they have uh, their XX or XY. And obviously consult pediatric endocrinologists and urologists as well. Statement number six, providers should not perform ultrasound or other imaging modalities in the evaluation of boys with crypt orchidism prior to referral as these studies rarely assist in decision-making. Again, I made prior to referral. I think that it, it emphasizes that we as the urologists can make the judgment call on whether or not we want to perform an ultrasound or not. Um, 
there's probably one indication that I think that it's worthwhile performing um, an ultrasound in is if you do not feel comfortable with your inguinal exam. So the times that you wouldn't feel comfortable with your inguinal exam would be in those who are relatively overweight. So your adolescent who's somewhat overweight and there's just a significant amount of adiposity kind of in the inguinal region and you really can't feel whether or not the testicles are being brought down. Um, and the reason why to me this is important is you get the ultrasound at that time, and if they're able to at least just see them somewhere in the inguinal area, then it's worth attempting an inguinal exploration rather than going through the diagnostic laparoscopy um, and then ultimately having to go through an inguinal exploration anyways afterwards. But again, this should be kept in the hands of the urologist. So why do they make this statement? Well, a couple reasons. First of all, oftentimes the ultrasound interpretation in these young children does not correlate with the exam. So as I mentioned earlier, these testes, these testes are tracked, right? So you're cold, nervous, or afraid. You put an ultrasound probe in there on the, on the groin area, the child's uncomfortable, the testis is going to pull up, the reed's going to come back, normal appearing testicle within the inguinal canal. And this goes to the PCP and they're like, well, I thought I could feel the testicle, that's weird. Okay, let's get them in for a urology consult. Now there's all this uncertainty between the parents and the, and the provider, and then results in potentially some unnecessary parental anxiety. So the only real purpose of a, the perfect imaging tool, if we could make one, is can we confirm absence? So of that 30% that are non-palpable, um, what did it say, 15 to 20% of those are um, um, vanishing or absent. So could we have great sorry, great sensitivity to the fact that there is no testis present. And both ultrasound and MRI do not allow for that. If we see the testicle, then it need, they need surgery. If we don't see the testicle and we can feel it or we can't feel it, they're going to get surgery. But if we can't feel it and we can confirm with 100% certainty that it's not there, then they would avoid a procedure. But both MRI and ultrasound do not do that well. So no imaging modality is reliable for diagnosing a vanishing testis, and it does not obviate the need for definitive surgical intervention. Okay, statement number seven. Providers should assess the possibility of disorder of sex development when there is increasing severity of hypospadias with, with cryptorchidism. I always, this one I highlighted the increasing severity. I just found that interesting just because that's subjective. I don't know really, I, I don't know if that means perineal, proximal, mid-shaft. Obviously, it's not coronal or distal shaft, but either way, when you have an undescended testicle in the presence of hypospadias, um, you should be very, you should at least um, question um, the need for a karyotype. Uh, 12 to 24% of hypospadias cases have associated undescended testicle, and the concern about underlying disorder of sexual dif differentiation, about 15% of unilateral UDTs in the presence of hypo, 30% in bilateral, and um, about 30 to 40% um, of the patients have DSD with the presence of an undescended testicle. Again, definition of this DSD is kind of broadening with the genetics um, uh, evaluation of these children. Historically, it would just be karyotype based, and now we're doing all these um, sequencing things and directed sequencing, um, allowing for us to kind of expand our DSD differentiate, uh, differential. So in the presence of these findings, hypospadias and undescended testicle, consider a karyotype, a pelvic ultrasound to evaluate familiarian structures that the karyotype is abnormal, a hormonal profile, and endocrinology and genetics consultations. Guideline statement eight. In boys with bilateral non-palpable testes who do not have congenital adrenal hyperplasia, providers should measure malarian inhibiting substance or AMH and consider additional hormone testing to evaluate for anarchia. Okay, so we talked about um, the importance of getting the pro hormonal profile and the karyotype for uh, CAH. So now that you've gotten that, you come back with XY, you already had gotten the hormonal profile. So when you're able to evaluate a, a boy with bilateral vanishing testes in the first about six months or so, even a little earlier than that, um, you can find the sweet spot where they're kind of in mini, mini puberty, where the testes are producing testosterone and MIS, and um, they have reasonable LH and FSH secretion as well. So if you get it in that period of time, you can, if you, if you identify there's testosterone and MIS, then you're fairly certain that there's testicles present as well, um, which would then kind of lead you down the road of exploration um, to look for these, these testes. Now, 
Um, historically, when they got past this period of time, they would give an HDD stim test. You get HDD stim, it causes increase in your gametotropins, which then res results in increase in your testosterone, uh, and then you would then measure testosterone levels after that. Um, unfortunately, it's not completely reliable, and also there's some reasonable side effects in doing this. Um, so at this current point in time, um, laparoscopy surgical exploration is often the recommended choice for the uh, avoid bilateral non-palpable testes. Okay, guideline statement nine. Oh, and lastly, that was for a normal hormonal profile. This is not for a child with bilateral um, absence. This is for some of the normal profile. Guideline statement nine. In boys with retractile testes, providers should assess the position of the testes at least annually to monitor for secondary ascent. Okay, so um, this is just to this is just to show that you can't just examine them one more time and call it good. Um, you have to continue to examine them. And most of, the, most of this is based on studies looking at boys with retractile testes and what percentage of them ended up becoming undescended. Again, a lot of subjectivity with the, the, what's considered a retractile testis, who's doing the exam, where is it measured, where is it at, um, et cetera. However, for those that had uh, retractile testis, anywhere from 7 to 32% of these boys ended up having undescended testicles requiring intervention. So just need to continue to do an exam as the PCP should be doing annually either way. Okay, so we've gotten the diagnosis guidelines. Hope you guys are doing okay. Um, this is completely bizarre. I have to be honest, just talking to my computer screen with no one else in the room, but I assume you guys are all listening. Okay, guideline statement 10. Providers should not use hormonal therapy to induce testicular descent as evidence shows low response rates and lack of evidence for long-term efficacy. Okay, next question. And this question is purely for my own curiosity. So have you prescribed or seen someone prescribe hormonal supplementation to induce testicular descent? So a lot of this, these hormonal studies have come out from, um, sorry, I'm just looking at a, um, have come out of Europe. And um, it's not FDA approved here to be used, but um, this has come out of Europe and all the studies of, about this have come out of Europe and um, I just never seen it done. You know, residency fellowship, I really haven't seen anybody ever do it before. So I just wanted to query to see if anybody has, see, has really seen it. I'm not sure who exactly is um, on with us today, if we have any Europeans or Canadian or Mexico or anywhere else around the world, colleagues on. Um, but it'd just be interesting to, just wanted to pull you guys to see who's seen it done. Looks about 9%. Um, not sure how many people answer. There we go, it's going down a little bit. Either way, um, not that many, but still higher than I expected, honestly. I shall leave the poll. The, the, the thought about this is that by using HCG or luteinizing hormone releasing hormone, so LHRH or, or GNRH, uh, it causes latex cell activity and testosterone production, which then is thought to induce testicular descent, but the exact mechanism is not well understood. It kind of goes back to us not really understanding testicular descent in and of itself. However, trying to however, it's been used for two different indications or or has been proposed to be used for two different indications. The first is to distinguish retractile from truly undescended testicles. So the studies that have been looked at showed for the response of retractile testicles. So if it's retractile, the use of HCG or LHRH should allow for it to stay distended. And if it's undescended, then it won't really work well. The results vary anywhere from 58 to 100% success rate. Um, but there's, this depends on so many different things, age, degree of retract, retractility, active diagnosis, and dosage resident used. Um, so it really wasn't successful to probably determine to retractile and UDT, um, and it just continues to support the need for serial examinations, which can be done without the medication. So the second one is to stimulate germ cell development. Um, so this Another uh, use uh, in Europe is based on giving low dose, long term, every other day for six months, LHRH analog to stimulate germ cell development in conjunction. So in conjunction with orchidopexy. So 
they did a retrospective, non-randomized, non-age-matched patients receiving Ducerelin, this LHRH analog, um, those with surgery versus surgery alone. And then they did germ cell biopsies later, and they noticed the germ cell biopsies were significantly higher in the treated group. So again, the, the method at which this study was designed has its flaws. Um, however, overall, the field of pediatric urology, at least in the United States, does not grasp onto this. And um, part of that is secondary to the significant side effects of HED treatment in up to 75% of boys, whether it be hyperpigmentation, pubic hair, penile growth, and at higher doses, you can either cause epiphyseal plate fusion resulting in stunted growth. So again, I don't think anybody's using it and it's not recommended to use it at this time. Guideline statement 11. In the absence of spontaneous testicular descent by six months, specialists should perform surgery within the next year. Okay, so why do we perform our kidapexies? So optimize testicular function. Um, so after infancy, it's already been shown to have a, a significant effect in the spermatogonium within the testis, um, but we want to give them till six months to descend, and we also um, uh, want to decrease the risk of anesthesia exposure too early, so it kind of gets us in that six to 18 month window. So that's kind of the year after six months. Um, so optimize testicular function, potentially reduce and or facilitate diagnosis of testicular malignancy. I'll talk about this at the end with regards to the reduction of the risk, but um, it does facilitate as it's much easier to do an exam of a scrotal testis than it is of an inguinal testis for a testis mass. Uh, it's said to provide an aesthetic benefit to have two testicles rather than the one in the scrotum. I'm not sure that's exactly well proven in literature. Um, however, um, uh, psychologically, there may be some benefit there. Um, and then also to prevent complications such as clinical hernia and torsion. And by torsion, um, both the act of torsion and maybe delay of diagnosis of torsion. So uh, this here is to just Believe just to show kind of how the processes vaginalis can allow for herniation of both fluids. So you can have fluid um, that passes through this channel here and around the scrotum. This is for a descendant testis, by the way. You can have a loculated hydrocele, so it's closed off uh, at the abdominal end and it's closed off kind of at the testicular end. You can have an incomplete hernia where it's kind of partially obliterated here, but it allows for passage of bowel contents, maybe in the proximal aspect of the process, it's vaginalis. And lastly, kind of a hernia all the way down into the scrotum. So for undescended testes, about 87% of unilateral and 71% of bilateral undescended testes have a, pro a patent process of vaginalis. As the testicle kind of is sitting inside the inguinal canal, it's kind of moving maybe all the way into intraperitoneally and then coming down somewhere within the canal. So it's keeping this patent. So by treating this, we would then close up the hernia and decrease the risk of um, herniation in the future. Um, and torsion. So if you've got an undescended testicle that's sitting inguinally, um, it may be confused with an incarcerated inguinal hernia and may result in delay in diagnosis of testicular torsion, which may result in further necrosis and then potentially loss of that testis. So by doing a also um, prevents future hernia and um, uh, hopefully earlier diagnosis of torsion. And on that testicle, after you pex it, it shouldn't torsion at all, actually. Okay, so why do an orchidopexy so young? Uh, we talked about the number of germ cells being reduced after infancy. We talked about how spontaneous descent stops after six months of age. There's no reason to wait any longer. Um, decreased risk of general anesthetic. So can, since descent stops at six months and most institutions make their cutoff around six months of age, some institutions about 12 months of age when you can start doing semi-elective or non-urgent procedures. Um, that kind of sweet spot kind of fits between six and, and 18 months. And also it's kind of nice to get these procedures done before they turn two years of age as they're less ambulatory. Um, they, maybe they're not gonna form a strong of a memory related to the surgery itself. And there's one last additional note. Um, the, the, the longer you get out from infancy, um, the better the tissue planes are with regards to dissection, which sometimes make the surgery a little bit easier. Okay, guideline statement number 12. In prepubertal boys with palpable orchid testis, surgical specialists should perform scrotal or inguinal orchidopexy. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of the scrotal, the inguinal orchidopexy. There are two different types, um, scrotal for the lower undescended testicle, inguinal for the higher undescended testicle. Some people do inguinal for all undescended testicles, kind of personal preference. Um, so in the child that's greater than 18 months of life, we still feel there's fertility benefits um, to do it in the preprubertal state. Um, but what's interesting is that the average year at which orchid 
actually has performed still remains at about four years of age. Hopefully there's been some improvement in this since they'll release these guidelines, these publications, and about only 18% of them have had it done before one year of age based on a phys uh, evaluation. Guideline statement number 13, and in prepubertal boys with non-palpable testes, surgical specialists should perform examination under anesthesia to reassess for palpability of testis. If non-palpable surgical exploration and if it indicated abdominal orchid apexy should be performed. So again, if it's non-palpable, you gotta do that EUA because they're gonna be inguinal or scrotal about 30% of the time. So remember, do your exam under anesthesia once they're asleep. Um, so this kind of goes back to that point about physical exam and whether or not there's contralateral hypertrophy. So this is, um, uh, quote right out of Campbell's because it's somewhat a little bit controversial, but vanishing testes are often in, the near, in or near the scrotum. Therefore, initial scrotal exploration should be considered when a palpable scrotal nubbin and a contralateral and contralateral testicular hypertrophy. I've been burned by this, going scrotally, what I felt to be a nubbin, aimlessly wandering through this fat of the scrotum to then ultimately have to do a diagnostic laparoscopy. Some people can feel the cord as they roll their fingers over the inguinal region. Be cautious. It's not a huge downside, a small, a small scrotal incision, um, but um, it, it, it does uh, it is additional operative time. Guideline statement 14. At the time of expiration for a non-palpable testis in boys, surgical specialists should identify the status of the testicular vessels to help determine the next course of action. Okay, so this kind of goes into the non-palpability testis and the need for diagnostic laparoscopy. So when you look at the bottom portion of of this screen here, uh, or the algorithm here, you can see that there's three different options when you're doing your abdominal exploration or laparoscopic versus open. You have testis identified, you have vessels entering the internal ring, you have blind ending vessels. This is where they kind of emphasize the vessels aspect. Um, so option number one, you got abdominal testis identified. So here in this picture to kind of orient you, kind of looking down towards the feet here, this is the uh, where the bladder ends here, uh, obliterated ligament, and then you've got your closed internal ring here. Um, you've got your testis over here. I can't quite see where the vas deference is. Um, either way, you've got a testis without anything really entering into the ring. So in this setting, you've got to decide, what do we do? So is there enough length to bring it down today? What most people do is they take the testis with a grasper um, and bring it over to the contralateral ring. If they can get it in the contralateral internal inguinal ring, then they're able to get, then there's reasonable length to get it down into the scrotum. Um, then you potentially do it in a single stage procedure without having to divide the vessels. If there's inadequate length, you then can think about dividing the testicular vessels. It's called the Fowler-Stevens maneuver. And you can do that and stage it. So you just divide the vessels, wait, come back six months later and bring it down into the scrotum or potentially divide the vessels and bring it down all together um, in one single operative procedure. Um, there are some randomized studies going on about this right now. Um, however, um, some people feel that the atrophy rate of the testis is the same whether or not you do a single or two-stage procedure. I do two-stage, um, but we'll see if, if this randomized study shows in the future. Uh, um, when you clip the vessels, the blood comes from the deferens and collaterals. Okay, so vessels entering the internal inguinal ring. So this is like somewhat subjective. So you see vessels, they look the same as the other side. Um, if you're uncertain, just do an inguinal exploration. You do an inguinal exploration, you may find a full healthy normal testicle. You may find a little bit of a numbing. But what you do definitely find is the answer. So don't hesitate if you're not certain. But sometimes when you're doing it, you're gonna see almost complete obliteration. So here you can see vessels here, blind ending, vas here, blind ending. So in this, a lot of people in the guidelines even say that you can go ahead and be done. So um, some people advocate for inguinal expiration uh, because in some studies, about five to 15% of the specimens of this nubbin or remnant does contain germ cells. And there has been a single case report of CAS in one of these testicular remnants. Um, this varies depending on the institution in which you go to. Um, I uh, do not go looking after these if it's definitively obvious that there is blinding vessels. If there's any question, I do an angle exploration. Okay, another controversial point. That's why I use their text so I don't, you know, make it more controversial with my off-the-cuff verbiage, but uh, contralateral fixation of a solitary testis in cases of monoorganism is advocated by some but not universally supported. The possibility that prenatal torsion is the cause of vanishing testis does not imply that the contralateral testis is likely to undergo 
a similar fate after the postnatal period. However, some surgeons empirically recommend contralateral fixation to eliminate the risk of such a devastating complication. So again, advocated by some, not universally supported, devastating complication. Um, yes, if you lose your solitary testicle, devastating complication. You're now anorchic, maybe haven't gone through puberty yet, becomes very difficult. What is the true risk of pexing a testicle that's already in the, it's already in the scrotum, you have to do any vas or vascular work? It's not zero, it's probably pretty close. What side do you decide to sit on? I think uh, it depend on your practice and counseling of the family. Um, I currently do relative uh, often pex this testis. Guideline statement 15, in boys with a normal contralateral testis, surgical specialists may perform an orchiectomy, removal of the unascended testis. If a boy has a normal contralateral testis and either very short testicular vessels and vas deferens, dysmorphic or very hypoplastic testis or post-pubertal age. That post-pubertal age is kind of the important point there, but um, so what can you do to get, in, get adequate length? So surgically, make sure you've got complete opening of the inguinal canal. Make sure you're at least looking into the internal ring if you, if you haven't already done that. You can open up the floor of the canal to get a little additional length. You can perform Fowler-Stevens right at this time. You can just divide the vessels and try to bring it down into the scrotum. If you're contemplating orchiectomy, vision of the vessels may result in atrophy, but if it doesn't, then you save the remaining testis. And then um, you can do the Prentice maneuver. It's kind of bringing the testicle underneath the inferior epigastric vessels and then tunneling it through its own fascial opening next to the bladder and kind of bringing it more of a straight shot down into the scrotum that'll get you a, a, a little bit of length. Um, and then lastly, you can do a stage orchid effect. You get it down as far as you can and then kind of come back another day to bring it down further. And if, the, if there's a normal contralateral testicle and postpubertal, maybe pushing you more likely to go ahead and remove the testis. Um, if you're not certain or you want to help something to help you aid in that de decision making, some people um, uh, recommend getting a biopsy of the testicle as if it's dysgenetic or has a low germ cell count, it'll make the decision to take the testis out a little bit easier for both you and the family. Okay, last guideline. I'm going to go through this one a little bit quickly, but um, providers should counsel boys with a history of cryptorchidism and or monoorchidism and their parents regarding potential long-term risks and provide education on infertility and cancer risk. So counsel boys, that's interesting. You know, if you're doing this when they're 18 months old, you're obviously not counseling them and you're probably not seeing them to the age that they can do independent decision-making or remember things into their adolescence. Um, so it's really important that you kind of counsel the parents appropriately. Um, we talked about the fertility. Oh, so some malignancies. The absolute risk of with an unascended testicle is somewhere between 0.5 and 1%. The relative risk to somebody with a descended testicle is about 2.75 to eight times higher. Um, so for the, an interesting study looked at those who have a history of unascended testicle, who did have it fixed or did not have it fixed, and so that those who were persistently undescended were most likely to be seminoma, and those that were treated were more likely to become non-seminoma, which kind of swings back to what kind of the normal pattern is seen for a descended testis who gets a malignancy. Um, however, some of the, the newer, longer, longer series studies have shown that the prepubertal orchidopexy does result in a two to six fold reduction in relative risk compared to postpubertal orchidopexy. But that risk is still greater than someone with descended testicles. And this is the key point. You just have to recommend regular self-testicular examinations as we do these boys and as we should do to all adolescents. Um, this here is just a, a nice little, you know, um, public service announcement or testicular self-examination sheet from uh, iheartguts.com. It's kind of fun. It's kind of, you know, um, it makes it a little bit easier for adolescents to follow and be willing to kind of do. But either way, it's really important to kind of emphasize this to the PCP as they're probably going to be the ones that are going to be seeing them into adolescence when they're no longer seeing a urologist. So thank you guys for your time. I hope that was uh, enjoyable. And I think I'm going to open it up to Yi for some questions. Great. Thank you, Dr. Sack, uh, for an awesome lecture. Um, just very quickly, again, for the people who weren't here in the beginning for the next session, please log out and log back in, and we'll start that at 10 minutes after the hour. Uh, for you, Dr. Sack, questions. There are a few questions about um, retractile testes. One, um, at what age do you stop examining uh, boys for secondary ascent? And then what's your decision algorithm on when you actually need to operate on these patients? Yeah, great question. So retractile testes, you know, the, the PCP should be doing regular testicular exams. So, you know, if, if I'm concerned that I'm like not sure if it's retractile or undescended, then I'll keep it with me. 
And I think that it's not really retractile and mildly retractile. I will send it back to the PCP. Um, but for me, it's, it's all dependent if I think it's going to be kind of undescended, which is kind of like more of a gestalt thing. But as the, by the time they enter into puberty, the testes should no longer ascend. They've had their growth spurts. They're kind of finished with that. So you want to kind of get through those growth periods in time, which happens kind of earlier in childhood than later on, kind of right before adolescence starts. Um, and then the second question was, how do I decide to intervene? Is that the question? Yeah. If, if, yeah. So if it's really retractile and there's a contralateral undescended testicle, then I will go ahead and fix the retractile testicle at the same time. They're going to get an anesthetic. You might as well bring them both, do, do it both in one stop. Um, if it's severely retractile, I struggle with the exam, but I can get it down. Parents are significantly anxious. Um, PCP is struggling with it. I will offer it as an option. I do think that those are the patients that are probably more likely to become undescended later on, and maybe by intervening earlier, I'll prevent that from happening. But again, that's like the art of medicine, I guess, but um, no, real, no real evidence for that. Great. Uh, there's a question, I think a scenario that many of us have encountered, where you take a patient uh, back for organopexy because you can't palpate the t testicle in clinic, and then under general anesthesia, the testicle seems to be just down in the scrotum. Do you still proceed with apexing these patients? And if not, do you follow them in clinic? How do you manage that situation? It's a really great question. Um, I don't have enough experience to have been burned enough to um, have the wisdom that's been imparted on me by my mentors is that you operate based on what you feel in clinic. Um, so many of my mentors have said, you when you feel it in the operating room, they're gonna come back to clinic and it's gonna be just where you were before and it's, the, it's gonna be that exact same position that you had decided to do surgery in the first place. So now you're kind of stuck in this conundrum like, what do you do, do you take them back? And it's just so much anxiety. So they've already, in, they've already had the risk of induction of anesthesia. The risk of orchidopexy is relatively low um, if it was a solitary testis, maybe I'd question doing it, but I probably would still move forward. Great. Um, a question about bilateral crocodism. Um, so after orchidopexy, we know that these patients have about 70% fertility rate uh, compared to uh, normal. And then the question is, what effect, if any, can bilateral cryptorchidism have on Leydig cell function and overall testosterone levels in the future, and if there's any studies documenting that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, it's a great question. Um, yeah, uh, the short answer is there's not great evidence or studies on that. Um, I kind of prepared for this question because I myself didn't have the answer, so I wanted to look it up, but I didn't feel confident enough in telling you what the exact answer was, so I didn't include it. But the point is, is that it's hard, really hard to measure because there's symptomatic hypogonadism and then there's... Um, just chemical, chemical gonadism, hypogonadism, so the, the testosterone level. And then there's also tracking these patients and finding these patients long-term to kind of test them. So that's kind of one of the first initial difficulties. The short answer is probably. It probably has an effect. And that's kind of the importance of when you're, when you're uh, screening somebody for a symptomatic hypogonadism is to ensure that you talk about their past medical history and surgical history for orchidopexies. So would you do anything to prophylactically tell them? I mean, maybe you could counsel them that if they had the symptom of hypogonadism, but at the same time, you don't want to embed that in their head that they're going to have this problem. Sometimes it can kind of result in false um, uh, assumptions of that issue. Great. A uh, question about, is there any situation where you would use a scrotal ultrasound for evaluation specifically in a very heavy set patient? Um, yes. Yep. I would. I would kind of talk to based on that. So I would use that. So again, like it's the, the guideline said it's providers should not get an ultrasound before referral. So they're alluding to the PCP or the referring provider. You yourself can really get any imaging you want. Like if it's got a DSD, and you want to look for eularian structures, testicular structures, and then, or what's more likely is that they're going to be adolescent, overweight, and you don't feel comfortable or confident with your exam. Yeah, get an ultrasound. It avoids putting a camera through their belly button, and maybe you can just explore them inguinally and, and avoid uh, intra-abdominal surgery. Great. There's a question about um, in the Fowler-Stevens first stage, do you take any precautions to prevent extensive adhesions from forming around the testes and cord structures, such as surgical cell? 
and to help facilitate the second second operation? Um, I don't. I I don't do much peritoneal dissection. I try to clip the vessels without cutting the peritoneum. Um, something that's easier said than done, and I do have to kind of insinuate my grasper underneath the peritoneum. Um, I don't cut the vessels right away. I allow them to kind of heal in place. I only do a single port on the right, on the contralateral side. So hopefully that there's no adhesion that forms kind of over the area that I've just put my clips, whether or not be up to the port site or, or even kind of somehow an inflammatory reaction results in uh, adhesions over the site of interest. Um, no, I don't use any other products though. Um, a question, why do you think it's more likely to have a patent process as vaginalis in a unilateral unascended testicle versus bilateral? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I don't know the study all that well. I don't think that difference is probably significant. I think that that was just chance. I think there's also a lot of subjectivity with identifying a patent process as vaginalis. Um, yeah, that's what I'm going to say. And also sometimes, you know, now that you got me thinking, you know, bilateral, sometimes maybe that other side was just retractile. And maybe they just made that decision that I had just talked about. Maybe they said, you know what, it's kind of undescended. We're going back to the operation for the other side. Maybe we'll just go ahead and do that side. And then maybe because of that, it wasn't as truly undescended and therefore had um, a closed process as vaginalis. Great. Uh, along those lines, if you're following a referred to patient with a history of unilateral undescended testicle, on an exam, you feel the testicle is ascended, but there's a communicating hydrocele. Do you then operate right away, or do you wait uh, for the one year one year of age recommendation for hydrocele?s How do you manage manage that patient? So they have an undescended testicle and a hydrocele. So they were referred for undescended testicle in this scenario, and but on exam, you're not really feeling that. So do you still manage? But you do feel a hydrocele. So are you managing it like an undescended testicle, or are you managing it like a, a hydrocele? Um, so in a true hydrocele, a tense hydrocele, without ultrasound, you don't really know where the testis is because the whole hydrocele sac is kind of bathed or within the scrotum, right? So if you have a hydrocele down into the scrotum, you can at least say that the tunica vaginalis goes all the way down into the scrotum, okay? Whether or not there's an associated undescended testicle at the same time is possible, but oftentimes in truly undescended testicle, the tunica vaginalis doesn't go down into the scrotum. So the tunic vandals is in the scrotum and there's a hydrocele there. My likelihood of thinking there's a concomitant UDT is probably pretty low and I probably would treat this more like a uh, hydrocele. But again, you're still within that appropriate range, the six to 18 months. I wait a year for hydroceles. Some people do wait longer. If there's any concern for unascended testicle, you could just get an ultrasound and confirm location of the testis, but um, I haven't done that before. Great. Um, a question about hormonal therapy. Uh, do you ever use hormonal therapy when it's not clear if the testicle is undescended or if it's retractile or a true undescended testicle as sort of a prognostic factor? I've never used nor seen it used. Great. A question about uh, fertility. The 90% fertility with unilateral undescended testicle, does that change with uh, age of repair? So the, if it's later, does that fertility number go down? I, it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard difference to probably measure because the gold standard, you're comparing it against somebody who has two descended testicles and the 90% that documented in the unilateral UDT to the 94% in the general population, even that was hard to differentiate the difference between. So the time of repair, um, it probably is important for a solitary testis um, long-term, like if you don't have a contralateral testis, um, it probably does make a difference long-term. Excellent. And then uh, our final question so far is uh, back to retractile testes. Uh, how often do you rely on parental exam when the baby's asleep? And is that something you recommend that parents do to sort of, to sort of help that diagnosis? So I had mentioned earlier on that the exam is somewhat difficult. And I try, I tell the parents that my job is so that they don't have to do the exam. And I try to take that out of their hands completely because that's kind of stressful. Like, is it there? Is it not there? Hey, grandma, come in the room. You feel, is it there? Is it not there? What am I feeling? It just causes so much anxiety. If you can take that out of their hands, I, I think that that would be best. Some parents will come and tell you they can feel it. If the parents are able to feel it, it's not likely undescended. 
and it's also unlikely to be retractile. Sometimes retractiles can be hard exams as well. Um, so I don't regularly tell the parents to try to examine it. If I feel like it needs to be examined, I either have them come back in a year and I don't think you lose a lot of time there, or I have the PCP continue to follow. Great. All right, well, thank you so much, Dr. Sack. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.